The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft Read by John O'Brien Chapter 2 A Passer in the Storm For days after that hideous experience in the forest-swathed mansion, I lay nervously exhausted in my hotel room at Lefferts Corners. I do not remember exactly how I managed to reach the motor car, start it, and slip unobserved back to the village. For I retain no distinct impression save of wild-armed, titan trees, demoniac mutterings of thunder, and Coronian shadows athwart the low mounds that dotted and streaked the region. As I shivered and brooded on the casting of that brain-blasting shadow, I knew that I had at last pried out one of Earth's supreme horrors. One of those nameless blights of outer voids, whose faint demon scratchings we sometimes hear on the farthest rim of space, yet from which our own finite vision has given us a merciful immunity. The shadow I had seen, I hardly dared to analyze or identify. Something had lain between me and the window that night, but I shuddered whenever I could not cast off the instinct to classify it. If it had only snarled, or bayed, or laughed titteringly, even that would have relieved the abysmal hideousness. But it was so silent. It had rested a heavy arm or foreleg on my chest. Obviously it was organic, or had once been organic. Jan Martinza, whose room I had invaded, was buried in the graveyard near the mansion. I must find Bennett and Toby, if they lived. Why had it picked them and left me for the last? Drowsiness is so stifling and dreams are so horrible. In a short time, I realized that I must tell my story to someone or break down completely. I had already decided not to abandon the quest for the lurking fear, for in my rash ignorance, it seemed to me that uncertainty was worse than enlightenment, however terrible the latter might prove to be. Accordingly, I resolved in my mind the best course to pursue, whom to select for my confidences, and how to track down the thing which had obliterated two men and cast a nightmare shadow. My chief acquaintances at Lefferts Corners had been the affable reporters, of whom several had still remained to collect final echoes of the tragedy. It was from these that I determined to choose a colleague, and the more I reflected, the more my preference inclined toward one Arthur Munro, a dark, lean man of about thirty-five, whose education, taste, intelligence, and temperament all seemed to mark him as one not bound to conventional ideas and experiences. On an afternoon in early September, Arthur Munro listened to my story. I saw from the beginning that he was both interested and sympathetic, and when I had finished, he analyzed and discussed the thing with the greatest shrewdness and judgment. 
His advice, moreover, was eminently practical, for he recommended a postponement of operations at the Martensa mansion until we might become fortified with more detailed historical and geographical data. On his initiative, we combed the countryside for information regarding the terrible Martins of family, and discovered a man who possessed a marvelously illuminating ancestral diary. We also talked at length with such of the mountain dwellers as had not fled from the terror and confusion to remoter slopes, and arranged to precede our culminating task with the exhaustive and definitive examination of spots associated with various tragedies of squatter legend. The results of this examination were not at first very enlightening, though our tabulation of them seemed to reveal a fairly significant trend, namely that the number of reported horrors was by far the greatest in areas either comparatively near the avoided house or connected with it by stretches of the morbidly overnourished forest. There were, it is true, exceptions. Indeed, the horror which had caught the world's ear had happened in a treeless space remote alike from the mansion and from any connecting woods. As to the nature and appearance of the lurking fear, nothing could be gained from the scared and witless shanty-dwellers. In the same breath they called it a snake and a giant a thunder-devil, and a bat, a vulture, and a walking tree. We did, however, deem ourselves justified in assuming that it was a living organism highly susceptible to electrical storms. And although certain of the stories suggested wings, we believed that its aversion for open spaces made land locomotion a more probable theory. The only thing really incompatible with the latter view was the rapidity with which the creature must have traveled in order to perform all the deeds attributed to it. When we came to know the squatters better, we found them curiously likable in many ways. They feared outsiders, but slowly grew accustomed to us, finally helping vastly when we beat down all the thickets and tore out all the partitions of the mansion in our search for the lurking fear. When we asked them to help us find Bennett and Toby, they were truly distressed, for they wanted to help us, yet knew that these victims had gone as wholly out of the world as their own missing people. That great numbers of them had actually been killed and removed, just as the wild animals had long been exterminated. We were, of course, thoroughly convinced, and we waited apprehensively for further tragedies to occur. By the middle of October, we were puzzled by our lack of progress. Owing to the clear nights, no demoniac aggressions had taken place, and the completeness of our vain searches of house and country almost drove us to regard the lurking fear as a non-material entity. We feared that the cold weather would come on and halt our explorations, for all agreed that the demon was generally quiet in winter. Thus, there was a kind of haste and desperation in our last daylight canvas of the horror-visited hamlet, a hamlet now deserted because of the squatter's fears. The ill-fated squatter hamlet bore no name, but had long stood in a sheltered, though treeless, cleft between two elevations called, respectively, Cone Mountain and Maple Hill. It was closer to Maple Hill than to Cone Mountain, 
some of the crude abodes indeed being dugouts on the side of the former eminence. Geographically, it lay about two miles northwest of the base of Tempest Mountain, and three miles from the Oak Girt Mansion. Of the distance between the hamlet and the mansion, fully two miles and a quarter on the hamlet's side was entirely open country. The plain, being of fairly level character, save for some of the low snake-like mounds, and having as vegetation only grass and scattered weeds. Considering this topography, we had finally concluded that the demon must have come by way of Cone Mountain, a wooded southern prolongation of which ran to within a short distance of the westernmost spur of Tempest Mountain. The upheaval of ground we traced conclusively to a landslide from Maple Hill, a tall, lone, splintered tree on whose side had been the striking point of the thunderbolt which summoned the fiend. As for the twentieth time or more, Arthur Monroe and I went minutely over every inch of the violated village. We were filled with a certain discouragement, coupled with vague and novel fears. It was acutely uncanny, even when frightful and uncanny things were common, to encounter so blankly clueless a scene after such overwhelming occurrences and we moved about beneath the leaden, darkening sky with that tragic directionless zeal, which results from a combined sense of futility and necessity of action. Our care was gravely minute. Every cottage was again entered, every hillside dugout again searched for bodies, every thorny foot of adjacent slope again scanned for dens and caves, but all without result. And yet... As I've said, vague new fears hovered menacingly over us, as if giant bat-winged griffins looked on transcosmic gulfs. As the afternoon advanced, it became increasingly difficult to see, and we heard the rumble of a thunderstorm gathering over Tempest Mountain. This sound, in such a locality, naturally stirred us, though less than it would have done at night. As it was, we hoped desperately that the storm would last until well after dark, and with that hope turned from our aimless hillside searching toward the nearest inhabited hamlet to gather a body of squatters as helpers in the investigation. Timid as they were, a few of the younger men were sufficiently inspired by our protective leadership to promise such help. We had hardly more than turned, however, when there descended such a blinding sheet of torrential rain that shelter became imperative. The extreme, almost nocturnal darkness of the sky caused us to stumble badly, but guided by the frequent flashes of lightning and by our minute knowledge of the hamlet, we soon reached the least porous cabin of the lot, a heterogeneous combination of logs and boards whose still existing door and single tiny window both faced Maple Hill. Barring the door after us against the fury of the wind and rain, we put in place the crude window shutter which our frequent searches had taught us where to find. It was dismal, sitting there on rickety boxes in the pitchy darkness, but we smoked pipes and occasionally flashed our pocket lamps about. Now and then we could see the lightning through cracks in the wall. The afternoon was so incredibly dark that each flash was extremely vivid. 
The stormy vigil reminded me shudderingly of my ghastly night on Tempest Mountain. My mind turned to that odd question which had kept recurring ever since the nightmare thing had happened. And again, I wondered why the demon, approaching the three watchers either from the window or the interior, had begun with the men on each side and left the middleman to the last when the Titan fireball had scared it away. Why had it not taken its victims in natural order, with myself second, from whichever direction it had approached? With what manner of far-reaching tentacles did it pray? Or did it know that I was the leader, and saved me for a fate worse than that of my companions? In the midst of these reflections, as if dramatically arranged to intensify them, there fell nearby a terrific bolt of lightning, followed by the sound of sliding earth. At the same time, the wolfish wind rose to demoniac crescendos of ovulation. We were sure that the one tree on Maple Hill had been struck again, and Monroe rose from his box and went to the tiny window to ascertain the damage. When he took down the shutter, the wind and rain howled deafeningly in, so that I could not hear what he said. But I waited while he leaned out and tried to fathom nature's pandemonium. Gradually, the calming of the wind and dispersal of the unusual darkness told of the storm's passing. I had hoped it would last into the night to help our quest, but a furtive sunbeam from a knothole behind me removed the likelihood of such a thing. Suggesting to Monroe that we had better get some light, even if more showers came, I unbarred and opened the crude door. The ground outside was a singular mass of mud and pools, with fresh heaps of earth from the slight landslide. But. I saw nothing to justify the interest which kept my companion silently leaning out the window. Crossing to where he leaned, I touched his shoulder, but he did not move. Then, as I playfully shook him and turned him around, I felt the stinging tendrils of a cancerous horror whose roots reached into illimitable pasts and fathomless abysms of the night that broods beyond time. For Arthur Monroe was dead. And on what remained of his chewed and gouged head, there was no longer a face.